So this morning we're going to cover John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Now last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 7 and how in the middle of growing craziness in life, how many can understand a growing craziness in life? Jesus shows up and he shows us what it means to be true true to who you are, what true faith is. It's not something that we are, are seeking to necessarily attain, though it is, is the goal, but he's showing you this is what it means to be me. This is what it should mean to be a follower of me. And what were those four points? True faith isn't offended. True faith isn't neutral. True faith honors God. And true faith judges, but they judge rightly. So this week we're going to finish chapter 7 and see how Jesus kind of continues to stir the pot. That's what I love about Jesus. He's not afraid to stir the pot. Anybody ever be around people who love to stir the pot? Like, I love to stir the pot. But Jesus wasn't afraid to purposefully stir the pot because it creates lessons out of stirring the pot. And it shows who he is. And so... What we're going to see this week is he continues to put the hammer down on this is who I am. If anybody wonders who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. And then he's also going to explain this is who we are also to be. And so verse 25 says this. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, if you weren't here, you'd have to glance through the first few verses, 24 verses. He's in a crowd of people, thousands upon thousands. These are probably some locals from Jerusalem that are part of the crowd. And they ask the question, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Because the religious leaders and ask, uh, a group of the Pharisees are, are seeking to kill Jesus for what he continues to say because he's leading people astray. Verse 26, but look, they're, they're, they're noticing that Jesus speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. In the previous verses, he stood and he began to teach. And what he began to teach is who he was. And so it goes on and it says, Do the rulers, the religious rulers, know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ, come, no, Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So just a, another quick reminder. So what happened? Jesus was in Galilee. He had spent six months there between feasts, that is Passover, and now he's at the Feast of Tabernacles. He was ministering with his disciples all around Galilee, which is the small rural area of Israel, and miracles were taking place, and, and teachings were happening, and people's lives were being changed. His brothers say, why don't you go to this if you want to really show who you are and show it to everybody that's going to be at this feast? And they're kind of sarcastically, to some degree, they're mocking him, or they're encouraging him because he's getting famous and they want to share in some of that fame whatever it is they're like show yourself off Jesus goes privately rather than with the crowd and he stands up and he begins to preach to the people now just imagine I want to repeat that I don't know how many people were in the city of Jerusalem I've probably given numbers I looked the other day again at the time of Jesus and the numbers range from like 20,000 people lived in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, all the way up to 2 million. So nobody knows. Uh, I saw probably an, an answer that somebody tried to average things out, and they say 70,000 to 80,000. But when a feast would take place, one of the three main feasts that were required pilgrimages for the Jews that did not live in Israel to travel to the temple three times a year, that the crowds would swell up to over 2 million people in that city. And so you're talking literally Jews who would come from all over the world to celebrate. And Jesus stands up and he begins to teach to those Jews. Now, he's hearing the whispers of who he is. Is he good? Is he bad? Is he deceitful? Is he leading people astray? And so he literally just stands and he says, the doctrine that I teach is not my own doctrine, but it's my father's doctrine. It's Father God's doctrine. And so he says that his father is God. Now, in these verses, some of the people who probably didn't even know who Jesus was, they didn't recognize him, they hadn't heard the stories, they hear his teachings, and they began to realize that this must be the man that everybody's talking about. 
that the word has spread that he's a great teacher, but that they want to kill him. And so they, they're really questioning how in the world is it that he can stand so boldly before literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of us, and they don't do anything. Do they too also think that he is the Messiah? It makes them start to wonder, why aren't they stopping him? This particular group of people, they start to dismiss the, the Jewish locals, or Jerusalem locals, Judean locals, start to dismiss Jesus as the Messiah, and they say it for this reason, because when the true Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. That's what they say. Nobody will know where he's from. Why are they saying such a thing? Well, there is a verse in the Bible that they misinterpret, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. Now, they took that to mean that all of a sudden the Messiah will appear out of nowhere, thin air, and show up at the temple. Nobody will know him. They won't know from where he comes. And so the book of Enoch also says something similar to this. If you don't know this, uh, in Jesus' days, they taught out of the book of Enoch. And so there's a verse in the book of Enoch that actually says this similar thing. And so there was a teaching that actually grew and spread, and it became very well known by the, day, by the time of Jesus that the Messiah would literally just appear. Now, what's odd about that is that, you know, they hold a high value of Scripture, of course, and the Bible clearly states where the Messiah would come from. And they all had those, that Bible, those books of the Bible. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says that the Messiah would come from a little town called Bethlehem. So they're thinking, we know where Jesus comes from, right? Now, we can judge because we know the story. But the truth is, if you lived in those days and you knew Jesus... You knew of Jesus. You'd heard the stories. Maybe you'd listened to him preach. Maybe you'd heard other people describe his teachings. Maybe you've heard of the miracles. This guy's been in ministry for probably close to three years at this point. He wasn't coming suddenly. He was popular amongst certain groups of people. He was, he was either famous or infamous amongst groups of people. And so when people start talking about him being the Messiah, he's not, he's not a new cookie. He, he's, he's not a new flavor. He's something that they were already aware of and had been aware of. And so for them, it's really hard to think that this Jesus could actually be the Messiah. And so in responding to their comments, verse 28 says, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me, and you know where I am from. And I've not come of myself, but again, he who sent me is true. Whom, by the way, you do not know. But I know him, and I am from him, and he sent me. I don't know if Jesus is throwing out a little sarcasm there, like, sure, you know me. Sure, you know where I'm from. But even more offensive is probably what Jesus says to them. I know him, but obviously you don't know him. Like these are, these are leaders, religious leaders who teach the Bible, and Jesus is literally looking at them and saying, you know what, I know him because I come from him, but you guys, you don't know him at all. Jesus makes it very clear to them. Maybe it's not just the religious leaders, but people who are, who are at the feast. Like, listen, if you don't understand this, you do not know God. You, the most privileged, most well-taught people in the world, the people who have the very word of God, scripture all around you, and yet you do not know God. Now, I'm not just talking about the days of Jesus. It's it's amazing how many people that would say they follow after Jesus that don't know Jesus. We have God's word literally all around us, available to us in all sorts of formats. We are some of the most privileged, well-taught people in the world, and yet there's many people who follow after Jesus, and they do not know God. Jesus makes it very clear 
that if you reject him as God's son, as the most precious gift in your life, then you do not know God, you don't honor God, you don't even love God or have God as your father, no matter what you say your relationship with God is or what your religion is. Some of the verses that we've been studying over the last few weeks, listen to this, John chapter 5, verse 23, we went through this a few weeks ago. Jesus said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Whoever doesn't honor the son doesn't honor the Father. You know how many people, in, they, they, they will honor God or they'll honor some other aspect of Christianity, some other person of Christianity, but they don't honor the Son. John chapter 5, verses 42 through 43, Jesus says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. How many people do you know that would say they have the love of God within them? And Jesus looks at them and says, you know what? If you don't have me, then you don't have the love of God in you. I don't care how much you say you love God. I don't, say how, I don't care how spiritually woo-woo you are, how spiritually enlightened you are. I don't care what juju you take and what crystals you read and what oils you put on. You're not picking on those, but like all of those things, the lovey-dovey, juicy, Christy, or following God type of feeling. Like Jesus is saying literally, you think you have God's love, but, but you don't have God's love unless you have me. So he's making it very clear. John chapter 6, verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Like you cannot exclude Jesus. Now, if you want to help somebody discern if they really know God or not, what do you do? You share Jesus Christ with them. He's the Son of God. He's crucified for sinners. He's the only hope of the world. And the good news makes it very clear that if you do not have Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you do not have God the Father. And this is what continues to upset the religious leaders. Jesus is making these crazy statements, crazy to them, like all they've known is God the Father. All they've known is, is Yahweh is God. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't know him. But no, that's, he's all we know. He's all we've studied. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. You don't know him. You can believe in God all you want, but if you ain't got me, you ain't got nothing. Right. Verse 32, or, or verse 30, therefore they sought to take him. They're like, get rid of this guy. We're tired of listening to what he has to say. That's not the way we, we believe. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, I could pause right there and take and talk a little bit about God's timing. Listen, Jesus wasn't going to be taken until God was ready for him to be taken. God's timing is everything. In every one of our lives, there's God's timing. I sit back and I think sometimes of all the times that things could have happened or did happen in my life, and I think it's all in God's time. Like there will be a day when I am no longer, and I don't really control that necessarily. Like Jesus will decide, it's time. I want you with me. There was nothing that was going to happen to Jesus that didn't happen outside of God's plan for Jesus' life. It was all in God's timing. And many of the people, it says, believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? What did Jesus do? They're wondering, like, could anybody even do more than him? And you know that the book of John really over, only covers seven significant signs. Seven. But that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't performing signs and wonders all the time. In fact, at the very end of his letter, the Apostle John would write these words when he would say to, to all of them that there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world for all the books if we wrote down what Jesus did. Can you imagine that? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. 
and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. I don't know about you, but like you have the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple, and they had religious guards and rulers, and so the Pharisees are like, you guys need to go arrest him. Shut that guy up, right? And so they send somebody to arrest him, and Jesus is saying to them, but to everybody, essentially, can't touch this. All right. Cheesy, I know. But that's what he tells them. I'm going to be with you guys a little bit longer. Can't touch this. Like, and, and I'll leave when I want to leave. Can't touch this. And where I'm going, you will not be able to go. Can't touch this. He puts a stop to the authorities. Like, that's the authority that Jesus had. And they didn't touch him. Verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go? That we shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So what's the dispersion? That's the Jews who had left Israel and they were in the, you know, outlying Gentile or Greek countries. Uh, And so the diaspora, if you've ever heard that, the dispersion of the Jews around the world. And so they're wondering, is he going to go to all these countries and start teaching? And, And they don't understand what he's even saying. Verse 36, what is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me where I am you, not, you cannot come. Like, it's amazing for how smart and educated people are that they're so dumb sometimes. The Jewish leaders are dumbfounded. Like, these guys aren't just leaders. Like, they are the leaders of society. They know the law, not just religious law. They know, they, they've studied everything. They're thinking that Jesus is going to take the ministries to the ministry to the Jews outside of Israel. And Jesus is not even referring to that. He's referring to heaven. Like where I'm going, you cannot go. But listen, what's ironic is he's not very far off because in just a few years, his good news will actually travel to the diaspora first, to the Jews outside. And Gentiles will come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Now listen, between verse 36 and verse 37, there's a time gap. You can't just keep reading this. You have to understand that verse 37 says, on the last day. Everybody say the last day. Up to this point, what we've been reading is Jesus had went to the festival. If you remember from last week, it's a week-long festival. Some uh, historians would say seven days or eight days, and it would be this grand party. It's the greatest celebration uh, that anybody could ever experience is how they would describe it. And so he had went after the rest of the crowd went to Jerusalem, walked from wherever he was in Galilee to the temple, and he went at a later date. Maybe it was midweek. Maybe this was midweek when he stood up and he began to teach and preach and had this interaction. And then he waits until the very last day. So there's been a time span that has taken place. It says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus, not for the first time, not 10 minutes later, but at least a day later, if not a few days later, once again, he stood up and it says, He cried out. Now, what Jesus was about to say is of great importance. Important, number one, because of how he said it. That word for crying out means that he was literally shouting at the top of his lungs. Now, in those days, from what I've studied, that was not the way a typical rabbi would teach. Generally speaking, they would walk in somewhere and they would sit in a chair. It was probably a grand, fancy chair, and they would begin to share and they would teach out of that. They wouldn't be yelling or raising their voice, and they would just share God's word with people and begin to expound upon it. But in this moment, out of the norm, like if it can't get any any crazier for Jesus, he decides to stand up and start shouting 
to the people, crying out in contrast to all the other religious teachers of the day. It's important because of where he said it. Now, he said it from the temple, but from what I've read from historians is that they believe that he was more than likely in the outer court of the temple. Now, if you know what the outer court of the temple is, it was called the court of Gentiles because Gentiles weren't allowed to actually come inside of the temple. And for Jesus to proclaim what he's about to proclaim from the court of Gentiles is significant for anybody who understood the Jewish religion in that day. Like the court of Gentiles was meant for the Gentiles, people who were non-Jewish but followed after Yahweh, their God, to be able to come and worship. But they didn't like Gentiles because they thought they were dirty dogs. And so they would feel that, right? You, you know the story of Jesus flipping tables in the temple. And so we talked about that at the beginning of this book in the first couple of chapters, right? In, the first, in chapter 3. And so they would fill it up with animals and bartering. And instead, they would have no place to worship. And so Jesus stands in that place where they are meant to be able to come and worship. And he begins to proclaim what he's about to say from the court of Gentiles that is inclusive of everyone. It's also important because of when he said it. There is a reason that John would put on the last day. Now, if you understand the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and there's different stories, of course, describing what took place, there was something that they would do with water. And from what I've read, they would do it sometimes, I think they would do it every single day, and then on the final day, they would circle the altar seven times. And so what would what this entailed, if you remember the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles and what it means, it's a celebration of God's provision, God's uh, protection of them being in the desert and how God provided miraculously for them. Over time, it became an agricultural celebration of God's provision. They were thanking God at this time of year for what God had provided, and then they were looking forward to the rains that were to come, and so it was kind of like what I would classify as a, a Jewish rain dance, in a sense, that God will provide in the future. And so they would get a procession of people. You're talking millions of people are there, right? And so the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and they would fill a flask, a golden flask with water. And that water is called living water. And then the people, they would lead the procession and they would chant psalms and the people would follow and they'd be waving palm branches or willows or whatever it might be. And this procession came all the way back to the temple. Now, along the way, if you study that out, as they're waving, they're talking about, they, they talk about the sound that the waving of the branches would make, the swooshing of the sound. And you know how they described it? As the Ruach. Now, if you don't know what the Ruach is, it's, it's the wind. It's the Holy Spirit. And so as they came to the temple celebrating God is their provider, they would be waving the branches and it was the waving of the Holy Spirit. And then they would have the living water in a vessel. And they would dump the living water onto the altar, celebrating God as their provider. Now, on the last day, they would walk around the altar seven times. Does anybody know where in the Bible it talks about walking around something seven times? And so what was Jericho? Jericho was the city that is kind of representative of the end of the Jews having to live in the desert. And it was representative of the victory that God would give them moving forward in life. And so as they approached the last day and they circle seven times around the altar, it was representative like God is continuing to provide for us, but he's given us the promise. And in that promise, we will have victory in life. And so they're celebrating and they're chanting this verse, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. They would say, therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, I don't know if you understand what that verse means, but it's significant. What they were saying in that very moment, that you, as followers of God, you will draw water, you will draw living water from the wells of Yeshua. Because what does salvation mean in Hebrew? 
It means Yeshua. What is Jesus' name in Hebrew? Yeshua. They didn't even know what they were saying in that moment. But they're literally describing the joy that will come, the victory that will take place as they learn what it means through the waving of the Holy Spirit in their life that they will have Yeshua, the living water, being able to flow out of them. And so in that understanding of everything taking place, that's exactly when Jesus decides to stand up amongst the thousands upon thousands of people and make this crazy proclamation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the spirit. Now John is writing in retrospect to the people whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Like there is tremendous significance to what, well, what everything that was taking place, the living water, the walking around, the victory that would come forth, continuing to look forward to God's provision by the pouring out of the living water. A hush over the crowd right as the priest goes to raise and pour. Jesus steps up. and He's like, listen, for anyone who thirsts, come to me. Like, like it, it's not about water or what you guys might even look at as, as living water. It's about me. For anyone who thirsts, come to me. Drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. I don't know about you, but I believe that Jesus up to this point has done everything he possibly can to get people to believe that he's the Messiah. You know, his brothers were joking with him, mocking him. Why don't you come there and show yourself off to everybody? They wanted him to perform signs and wonders. Jesus isn't joking around. He's like, yeah, I'll show up, and I'm going to start telling people again people from all over. This is who I am. He's performed miracles. He's taught scriptures. And he said he's only going to be here for a little while longer. And so what's he going to do? He's going to make the biggest splash he possibly can. And he's going to let everybody know. And one of the most boldest moves that he can make, he interrupts the most joyous moment of the celebration in order to broadcast to essentially the world in that time, if anyone, do you even understand what he's saying? Who is anyone? Jesus is looking out to the crowds of people. If anyone, all of my enemies even, like if it's you, the, the Gentiles that don't like the Jews because the Jews really don't like you, considered an enemy. If you're a Gentile, if anybody, if you're a Pharisee, if you're somebody that's been trying to kill me, if anybody will come to me, if you're a Sadducee and a religious leader and you're trying to arrest me, if you're the chief priest, if you're one of the, the officers, if I've offended you, if I've said something that has hurt you, if, if there's doubt that you might still have in me, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter what you think or who you are or what you've done. If anyone, if anyone will come to me, and do these three things. Number one, thirst. Everybody say thirst. What is thirst? It's a recognition of need in your body, right? Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God. Like Water is more important than food. Do we realize that? Like literally, you can go days, days, and days without food, but you can only go a few days without water. It's an extreme need that our body has. And listen, even though you might have thirst, thirst in and of itself isn't anything, right? It's a lack of something something that you, you need. It's an emptiness. You have to acknowledge that you have 
a need before you'll seek to alleviate that need. You ever like you're eating something? Maybe it's just me because I'm fat and unhealthy at times. But I'll be eating food and I'll realize like, why am I eating this? Not, not just because there's no need to eat it, but I will realize, you know what? This is dumb. It's not that I'm hungry. I'm actually really thirsty. Have you guys ever done that? Like, I've, I've stopped and analyzed, why am I eating right now? I'm not hungry. I'm actually thirsty. Go drink water. No, I'll keep eating chips. No, like. I mean, the need isn't great enough, I guess. And the truth is, people don't come to Christ because the need isn't great enough. They don't think that they need to. Because in order to come to Christ, you have to recognize the need of thirst in your life. The second thing that he says is you can recognize that thirst, but you know what? You still got to come. Right? There's got to be some sort of effort behind the knowledge, some sort of effort behind the recognition that you need to now approach the source that will meet your needs. And he doesn't just say you've got to come but you've got to come to me. That's important because there's a lot of false sources in our lives that promise to quench our thirst, but don't. Right? Any of you guys like bubbly water? You know, the bubble water, whatever those drinks are that have the fizz in them, and it's water. It's water, but it's fizzy water. Whatever that sparkling water, that kind of stuff, my family likes to drink that. And it's like we, we will go do something and then everybody's thirsty and they pop out their bubbly water and me because I don't plan ahead, I don't have any water. And so I'm like, I'll t- yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead and take a drink of it. I don't like that stuff, but I'll take a drink. And I, I take a drink and the weird thing is it only makes me thirstier. I'm like, how is this thirst quenching? That's such a lie. Like, it's bubbly water. Like, what is the deal with this? It's supposed to be water, but there's something to it. All it does is make me thirstier. Like, that's false labeling right there. This stuff, I I don't even know if you can call it water. Like, how is that? And then the other thing that happens, and it happened this morning, is I'm thirsty when I wake up. I'm thirsty when I get to church. So what's the first thing that I do when I get to church? I go in and get a cup of coffee. Why? Because coffee is made with water. Like it's all water. Just a few grounds. It's brown water. And so I fill myself with brown water, and it tastes so good, so much better than bubbly water. But the bottom line is, it's probably been 35 minutes to 45 minutes. I am still thirsty. Why? Because even though what you pour in is water, When you drink it, it gives you this false hope of quenching thirst. That's not really why any of us drink it. But it it gives you this false idea that water, which is meant to hydrate your body, and instead it does just the exact opposite. You think you're going to the source because it contains some aspect of water when really it's a false source. And that's what we spend our lives doing spiritually. Our body thirsts for God. Our soul thirsts for God. Mind, emotions, and will, we don't even realize it, but we've got to recognize it. Once we recognize it, there isn't anything else that's going to quench that thirst but the living water, Jesus himself. We can go do a lot of other things in the world thinking that it's going to meet that need inside of us, and it's nothing but false water. The only thing that satisfies is Jesus. Number three, he says, drink. Everybody say drink. You've got to receive what is needed, which means you've got to get it in you, right? What does that mean? Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
what do you mean, taste and see that the Lord is good? It means that there's more to it than just having the knowledge, acknowledging the need, that there's more to it than even knowing what the source is. There's got to be some aspect of experience with God, with Jesus. He says to taste and see. That means you, you've got to grab hold and, and get him inside of you. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And what did he tell all those people that turned them away from following after him when he lost the majority of his followers just a, a chapter ago? He said that you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You've got to get me in you if you're really going to be a follower. He's not talking about just believing. I, I can believe I'm thirsty. Or just acknowledging the need. I have a need for something in my life that's greater than me. He's not talking about even just believing that Jesus is the source. I know that might shock some of you because the whole idea so far has been if you just believe in Jesus Christ. But there's more than just believing that that source is the right source. Like I can know that it's, not, it's the right source, but I'm still not taking something from the source. There's a lot of people that would say, I have a need in my life, and I know that Jesus will meet that need. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and yet they're not partaking of the source. It's okay to believe, right? But you've got to get that source in you to have that transformation. In James, James writes that even the demons believe and tremble. They believe that Jesus is who he is, and yet they have a fear inside of them because they believe so much. And yet, it takes something more than just belief. You've got to drink Jesus in. You've got to get him inside of you. Can you imagine you're walking around somewhere and you are dying of thirst? This has happened when I went hiking before because I don't plan And you get to a body of water, and you're like, oh, that looks so good, right? Man, you know that that's the source of what you acknowledge is your need. Now, listen, you can get into that body of water. You can dive in. You can get all wet, come out. Water's coming off of you. You, you feel a little bit refreshed because you're cooled down, your hair's wet, you look the part. You can look the part. But dang it, if you didn't get it inside of you. If you don't have the source in you, you haven't met the need. You're still thirsty. You've got to get Jesus in you. Jesus is clear. Like in the desert, the Israelites wandered around, and they're celebrating in this feast God's provision. And what, God, what did God do to provide water for them while they were thirsty in the desert, complaining they're about to die? Water flows forth from the rock. And you know that the Bible says that Jesus was the rock. It's clear that we've got to get Jesus. We've got to take that next step inside of us. Read his word. Talk to him. Listen to him. Sing his songs. Shout his praise. Do whatever you've got to do to get to know Jesus personally in your life. You know, we aren't made to be a pond, right? There's a reason why Jesus would want you to drink up. Because if you get them in you, then it says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. I just wanted to dive in on this for a few minutes. Like, this should be the true sign of someone who is a solid believer. Not that they know the need. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Yes, I'm a sinner. I know that I have a need. Not that they know the source. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Not that they even look like they're connected. They're wet from head to toe. 
but out of the bottom of their heart, out of the bottom of their soul, their belly, it says, will flow rivers of living water. You want to look for Christians who are solid in their faith, look for somebody that has a flowing faith. Everybody say flowing faith. Let's talk about this for just a second. And, and hear my heart. I'm not picking on anybody today. Most of you, I don't know well enough to make these statements to you. But if God speaks to you, recognize this. But when it comes to the gospel, the good news, everybody say good news. What's supposed to be good news is our lives pursuing Jesus Christ in the midst of this journey called life, right? And to me, there's nothing, there's, there, there's not, I wouldn't say nothing, there's few things worse, few things worse than an offended, bitter, complaining, nagging, negative, gloomy, grumpy, crabby, sourpuss Christian who gets stuck on all the things that are going wrong in their world so they then choose to spend life sucking the life out of everyone else around them. Listen, I continually have to remind myself because we go down this road sometimes of negativity, of getting stuck on world scenarios and the garbage that's going on and the people around us that are, are getting terminal cancer and having family members die. We get stuck on the job and, and inflation and all of these things, all of the evil in the world and all the things that we look at are signs of evil rising up in the world and it's got to be close to the return of Jesus and we need to elect this person and this person and we get caught up in the politics and the end times and all of this stuff and all we do is we get caught up in this negativity and people look at us and they're like why are they so negative like I can't even imagine what it must be like to live in their world Jesus said if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you are continually hydrating yourself with the wells of Yeshua, salvation, then there should be rivers. That's plural. Like I looked up pictures to try and put up here, and then I didn't get a picture to put up here. Then I just pictured like this waterfall and all these streams and all these rivers literally just pouring off the top of it. Plural. Multiple streams of water should be flowing out of you. Jesus didn't say either that because that water is in you from the wells of Yeshua that you just take it all in and then you soak like a little pond and keep it to yourself because that wouldn't be healthy. He's called us to be vessels. And this is how you know if somebody's really partaking of the source. Because if they're partaking of the source, then that stuff should just automatically be flowing through them. I don't know about you, but at 51 years old, when I do get my hands on a bottle of water, I can promise you it flows through me. I can't stop it. That's just a small sign of what it means to get Jesus in you. And if you're getting Jesus in you, then Jesus should be coming through you. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Like, in my opinion, if we're really living life like we should, the world should think we're crazy. Not because we're grumpy as hell. But because we're joyous despite hell. If we all lived like this, there would probably be a lot of amazed people thinking, hmm, these really are Christians. And that's exactly what the crowd started to do with Jesus. Verse 40, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is, is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, 
where David was. Here you got a bunch of ignorant people, not even realizing that's exactly where Jesus was born or even investigating it. So there was a division amongst the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers, they came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered and said this, no one ever spoke like this man. Not only was he a great teacher, but they're talking about the authority that came forth from Jesus in knowing who he was. Verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus who is one of the Pharisees, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. As I close right here, I just want to point out, notice anyone who even started to question if Jesus could be the truth, anybody who started to question the leaders of the people, anybody who started to question the rulers of the people, anybody who started to question those who were literally in authority of the people, if they started to question, is this the truth? They were automatically canceled by insults. That's exactly what took place. Oh, the crowd? The crowd catching on to what Jesus said impacts them in such a way. Some of them start to say, this is the Christ. And the leaders at the time look at that crowd and they say, you know what? They don't know the law. You guys don't even know the law. You guys are cursed. They insult them. How do you know that they didn't know the law? They just start slamming them with insults to knock them down and scare them from acknowledging what the truth really is. They look at the officers. Why did you guys not bring Jesus to us? And the officers said, there's nobody that's ever literally spoke like this. Man, you don't understand. They look at them and say, oh, you guys must be deceived too. They're looking at the truth. They're, they're asking questions about the truth. Oh, and they start knocking them, insulting them. You guys are just deceived. And then finally, one of their own rises up, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, his only cry is, you know what? Hear the guy out and see what he's done. And what do they do? The religious leaders, they're fearing what is true and people catching on to the truth. And they look at Nicodemus and they say, oh, you must be from Galilee too. What does that mean? To be from Galilee was a rural area. It was looked down upon by people from the big city. Has anybody ever seen people go on Facebook? And I've seen people go on there and they talk about, you know, there's some drama going on and, you know, how people like to get the drama on publicly on Facebook. And then other people from like Cord Lane or people that have moved away and they're like, oh, yeah, all that stuff that goes on in the Silver Valley still happening. Oh, that drama. They look down upon the people who have remained here or stayed here because they're in the big city. And this is exactly what they're doing. They look at Nicodemus, one of the greatest leaders of their group of people, and they're like, huh, oh, yeah, you think that there's the potential that there could be truth to this story? You must be one of him, one of them. You must come from those, that area too, one of those little rural towns. Like he's dirty, like he's a dog, and they begin to insult him because he's trying to point to the truth. But listen, here's what we need to remember when it comes to the good news. As the crowd said in verse 41, if you're sitting in here and you're wondering this morning, some of those people, they caught on, and they said, this is the Christ.
the officers, they were able to recognize this man has authority like nobody else that we've ever heard of. Nicodemus says, maybe you should just hear him out and see what he's doing. These are all statements to everybody that's sitting in here this morning. This is the Christ. There's nobody with greater authority. And if you haven't done it before, maybe you should just hear him out and see what he's done. As John says at the end of this chapter, this book, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you will have eternal life. He is true. He is who he said he was. Our most precious treasure, our thirst-quenching water, our hunger-satisfying bread, our ever-guiding light, our once-and-for-all substitute, the sacrificed Lamb of God. But don't leave it at that. Have a flowing faith. Get Jesus in you. Come, eat, drink, trust, and in him find that eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we end as we started. Lord, I pray that beyond the words that I spoke, that you spoke to people's hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, that you taught people this morning what it is that you know they need to hear, what they need to be taught. That your word that is alive and able to bring transformation will rise up inside of our hearts. As we talked about last week, to have that true faith, may that faith also be a flowing faith that there will be a recognized need a thirst for you that we'll ignore all other sources that the world has to offer that there will be a desire inside of us to get you in us and that as Christians we will know the joy of the Lord and that those rivers of living water will flow out of us to bring life to the world around us, life to dead places, to dead people, life to dead circumstances, life to our family, to our community, life to those who need you in their lives. Lord, let us not be idle in our knowing, but let us display your goodness, your good news to the world around us. Lord, we thank you that you are